Good morning. Our scripture passage is going to be from Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 8, and we're going to read all the way through 7. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great works and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But when they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking, they had secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses and said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The glory of the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God, who was with him and rescued him out of the afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on their second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. 
He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who wronged his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now, I, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside in their hearts. They turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out in the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of wilderness, witness in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses, directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had set. Our fathers in turn brought it with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those whom announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now have both betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. When they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, 
Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Stephen's speech here, his, his defense, is the longest discourse, the longest speech in Acts. And we're looking at the, the secret instigation, that the stoning of Stephen, and we're looking at his sermon, and we're ending, and we see how it ends here with Stephen being killed. He's the, the first martyr recorded in the book of Acts. Inspirational speeches have a way of sticking with us, don't they? You're marking key moments, or they're oftentimes placed at the center or the, a key kind of climactic moment in a movie, a key speech, an inspirational speech. And whether it's General Maximus in the movie Gladiator, that speech inspires me, right? Or Sylvester Stallone in Rocky, or the speech in We Are Marshall, or Coach Boone in Remember the Titans. These, these speeches have a way of sticking with us, calling us to inspirational things. One of my favorites, William Wallace in Braveheart, or Mel Gibson yelling out, <laughs> there's key moments in movies too that are based on the law court setting right and uh, there's kind of like the the my cousin Vinny moment when the person who is innocent but is charged with wrongdoing they're defended they're they're framed they finally get justice based on this key evidence this speech they're released and the truth is discovered and the conflict is resolved that's not what happens in our story this morning. The Christian faith is counterintuitive. And many of the concepts in the kingdom of heaven are upside down. Jesus' teaching is contrary to cultural norms. So the first shall be last. The greatest are those who serve. Hatred is not countered with punches, but with prayer. Those who win are not the strong, but the weak. The path of greatness is not ascended in pride and climbing a ladder. It's descended into humility and surrender. The hero of the Christian faith is Jesus, a man who was betrayed, falsely accused, framed, beaten, mocked, sentenced to death without doing any wrong, tortured. And Stephen is a man who follows in his footsteps. The key moment is not when Stephen is he's presenting this evidence to them and they go, ah, yes, now we see that we're wrong. <laughs> Stephen, you're so right. You're vindicated. He's killed. They're so enraged at the truth. They, they kill him. And instead of the story ending happily ever after and justice is served and the truth is received and the good guys win in the end, this story doesn't end that way. Stephen is killed. And in the wake of his death, there's a great persecution that arises all throughout Jerusalem and the Christians are beginning to scatter out of Jerusalem. And as the first Christian martyr recorded in Acts, Stephen's death marks a pivotal moment in church history. It marks a pivotal moment of kind of the focus of uh, the gospel going forth in Jerusalem to going into Samaria. And we'll see another moment in the life of Paul where there's a key moment where it goes to the ends of the earth. So this is a beginning of the expansion of the gospel. It's out of Jerusalem, and a key moment is right here at the story, the death of Stephen. But I think Stephen also serves as an example to us, as a faithful witness of Jesus from the biblical text of trusting in Jesus, giving his life to Jesus, and finding a similar death as Jesus. So let's consider the story, shall we? Let's look at it. In the passage our friend Carrie preached last week, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, we're told that a complaint rose from the Hellenists about 
They, their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the apostles summoned the full number of the disciples together and they say, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And the full number of the disciples, they choose seven men. And the first of whom, those seven, is listed is a guy named Stephen. He's described as full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So Stephen is a leader in the church. He's been appointed by the church to serve in this role. And, and he's not just focused on the daily distribution we see in this moment, but he would also teach. It's not as though the men in this story will go, okay, teaching is only for the apostles, and I have no responsibility to share and talk about Jesus. We see Stephen did not have that kind of dichotomy. Yes, he was appointed to the ministry of serving tables, but he also would teach in the synagogues. He was talking about Jesus. And we're told that some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen, the Cyrenians and then the Alexandrians of Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. And this could be different groups of different synagogues, or this could be different groups in the same synagogue. But they don't like what Stephen's saying. They start debating with him and arguing with Stephen. And, and those who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen in verse 10 were told, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They, they couldn't stand up against the wisdom and the spirit. They, they were not able to cope with his wisdom. They were unable to oppose his wisdom. And what happens when you can't beat someone in an argument or a debate? You try to silence them in other ways, oftentimes through force. They can't win. So they seek to secretly instigate men that will are going to make up claims about him. And they say, we have heard him speak blasphemous things against God and Moses. And they, they stir up the people and the elders and the scribes, they seize him, they drag him away and they bring him before the council and they set up false witnesses. They accuse him. They say, this man never ceases to talk against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. They're essentially charging Stephen of blasphemy. The same thing that Jesus' opponents accused him of. The very same thing. And look with me at verse 17. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, what does that look like? I'd sure love to know. But I think Luke, the author of Acts, is cueing us into something here that they're seeing something different about Stephen. <laughs> his face is shining like an angel, but it doesn't cause them to have any kind of change of thought or mind. They still kill this guy. And I don't think a face of an angel is not so much a comment on his Stephen's dashingly good looks. Or you hear someone sing, they have the voice of an angel. You're talking about they have a really nice voice. I used to joke with my brothers and sisters that I had this voice of an angel and I'd just annoy them singing so loudly and in their face. <laughs> Older brother, right? They're the worst. <clears throat> so annoying. <Amen>. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Gary. But this is a similar description as Moses in, at Mount Sinai. His face was shown shining because he had been talking with God. And it's similar to Jesus's face, who was described as being transfigured before the disciples. His face is described as shining like the sun. His clothes became white as light. They saw that his face was like the face of an angel, but it didn't cause them to stop. It didn't cause them to reflect. It didn't cause them to change their mind and see how they were wrong. And then Stephen gives this long speech, the longest speech in Acts. Chapter two, or excuse me, chapter seven, verse two, all the way through verse 53. And there's two main points two central points of the speech. Number one, no temple can contain God. 
So speaking against the temple, no, I'm not doing that. But I'm, I'm telling you, something new is here. Something different's here. Even God, you see, he says, I'm not, I'm not confined to this temple based on Isaiah. The God of Israel is the God of sojourners from Abraham onward. God is not restricted to any one place. He can't be put in a box. You can't control him with your own effort. And announcing that Jesus is the new temple is not blasphemy against the old temple. It's the fulfillment of what the physical temple pointed to. That's what Stephen's saying. Number one, right? No temple can constrain God. Number two, he's not speaking against the law. So he's not speaking against, he's giving a defense of, he's not speaking against the temple. He's not speaking against the law. Both of these realities, the temple and the law, pointed to this Jesus as the righteous one. The Jewish people, they're the ones who received the very instructions of God, the very words of God, the law of God. And they're claiming that they're concerned about the law, but Stephen ends his speech. Did you see how he ended it? You who received the law and did not keep it. So you guys are priding yourself and we, you're speaking against the law. He's like, you guys are accusing me that I'm against the law, but you guys aren't even keeping it. Look how the law points to Jesus. And he highlights, Stephen highlights two things, two figures in the salvation of the people of Israel from Egypt, a guy named Joseph and a guy named Moses. Right? Moses, the man to whom God revealed himself, who's, who's attributed to writing the first five books of the Bible. He received living oracles, right? living word of God, the life-giving words passed on to the Jews. Yet Moses, the deliverer, what Stephen says, the rescuer, the redeemer, the messenger of God, was rejected by his brothers. And Joseph, a man who saved the patriarchs from famine in Canaan, was rejected by his brothers, right? Both, Jesus, both Joseph and Moses rejected by their brothers, right? These are two key figures that Stephen reminds the Israelites of their history. He gives a summary of the history of the Israelites, Old Testament history. God called the forefather of our faith, Abraham, from the land of the Chaldeans to a land that God would show him. He told him that his offering, offspring would be sojourners, that they'd be enslaved for 400 years, but that they would be saved and redeemed and brought from God to the land which he promised to give them. And Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had a son named Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons. He was later renamed Israel. And these come the 12 patriarchs, the 12 leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the brothers were jealous of one brother named Joseph, who they sold into Egypt. But God was with him and through him blessed the whole tribe of Israel with food and with land, and the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. But he reminds them there's a new pharaoh that comes up into power. doesn't remember Joseph and all that he did for the, for the Egyptians, and he forced the Israelites into slavery. But God was going to save the people through a baby boy who was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, who was raised in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and God rescues and delivers his people through Moses. And Stephen says in verse 35, this Moses, right, look at the rejection theme, whom they rejected, just like Joseph, who made, and they rejected him saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? And Stephen says, this man performed wonders and signs in Egypt. You see the connections here with Jesus. And he, at the Red Sea, and he led him into the wilderness for 40 years. And this Moses even said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. But look, look at the same theme. Even Moses, who did signs and wonders, who they led out of Egypt through the Red Sea, they rejected him. They refused to obey him. They thrust him aside in their hearts. They turned to Egypt. This is what the people of Israel continue to do. Stephen's reminding them. 
They turned away from God. They did not worship him. And through the prophets, God warned them. He promised them, you guys continue in your rebellion. You're going to be exiled, and this is what happens. And Stephen continues, as recorded in verse 44, our fathers had a tent of wilderness in the wilderness. And our brothers' fathers, in turn, brought it with them, with Joshua, when they dispossessed the nations. And David wanted to build a house for God, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. But this is what God says about the temple. The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Yes, in the wilderness they had a temple, and as they came to possess the promised land in Jerusalem, they built a temple for a place of God's presence. But God, Yahweh, he does not dwell in houses that were made by humans. The earth he describes as his footstool. (laughs) It's way bigger than a little temple. God's not going to be confined to a box. And then Stephen drives it home, right? He says, think about our history. Moses, Joseph rejected by his brothers. He was a type of savior. Moses, redeemer, rejected by his brothers. He received living oracles. They refused to listen to him. And God made the temple. But he even says about the temple, I'm not confined to this place. <laughs> so he brings it all home and then says right to them. He's speaking to them. How would you guys respond to this? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. And I don't think Stephen here is kind of filled with a kind of rage where he's responding now in name-calling. Like, you, you know, when you get so mad, you're just calling people names. I don't think Stephen's doing that. I think he's trying to get them to see. He's trying to reason with them. He's, he's trying to even use language to cue them in to, hey, snap out of it see the history and how we've acted and respond differently. We have historically, continually opposed and rejected God's messengers and his deliverers. Guys, we don't have a good track record in this. <laughs> we rejected, the father, fathers rejected Moses. It says, you stiff-necked people, you uncircumcised in ears and heart. This is not some sort of uh, first century burn, like a bizarre kind of burn is Stephen's given his brothers here. Without some cultural, historical context, you might be thinking, uncircumcised hearts. Whoa, that's kind of weird. Stiff-necked? What does that mean? It's maybe how people are going to look, you know, 100 years from now, back at us, and the slang that we have in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, and scratch their heads. If you're older, you might have the slang like groovy, right? That wasn't my time, but... Yeah, rad. Oh, dude, that was tight, right? That was something that we use, tight sick, word. Right now it's like, I'm dead, or you know, I'm salty, glow up. Right? There's, even, there's new slang that I've, I'm learning from my friends who have teenagers, like, man, that was bussin' bussin'. What does that mean, you know? <laughs> yeah, I hear the phrase like, you know, you know, totes lit fam. And I know it's not referring to totes that are on fire. I'm talking to my family, right? It's a phrase, like, cool. It was nice. <laughs> An uncircumcised heart or ears are a heart is, it's, it's a heart that's, set up, that's not set apart for God. An uncircumcised heart. It's a heart that's just like unbelieving, pagan, people outside of the covenant. It's a heart that's not aligned with God. It's, it's closed to God's word and his will. A stiff-necked people is a way of saying stubborn independent, prideful, rebellious. They're not surrendered. They're not 
obedient. In the, the cultural historical context of the Jews, they were much more of an agricultural society, culture. And farmers would use ox to plow their fields. And they would hold the plow with one hand, and in the other hand, they had the thing, this thing called an ox goad. So I guess I think it's kind of a cool name. Ox goad. And it was like a long pole with a pointy uh, iron tip at the end, and they'd use this ox goad to, to direct the ox. They say, either go faster, they kind of prick him in the back of the legs to make him go faster, or they'd use it to turn the ox if they wanted to make a turn. So if an ox was stiff necked, he didn't turn easily. He did, the ox didn't listen very well. You had to give him a little harder turn, you ox, right, with this ox goad. <laughs> it had a hard neck, it wouldn't listen. It would go its own way. It was hard to control. It was stubborn. It wouldn't listen. So when this is you, un, you stiff-necked people, that's what he's saying. You don't listen. You're independent. You're stubborn. You're not responsive to the word of God. You're not obedient to him. You're not pliable, and, and you, you don't go where he says. You got your own. I'm going this way. <laughs> you can prick me with that goad. I'm going this way. I don't know if I use that term correctly, but I think you guys are understanding what I'm trying to say. The first time this phrase is used, actually, stiff-necked people, is in Exodus chapter 32, verse 9. And God had redeemed and saved and delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. And he was giving instruction to Moses on Mount Sinai. Literally, in the, in the moment of giving instruction to Moses, Moses up on Mount Sinai, God's speaking to him, giving him instructions of, now that I've saved you, people of Israel, here's how you're supposed to live. <laughs> and the people down below, they're like, we don't know what happened to Moses, but we need a God to worship. Aaron, make a God for us. And Aaron, you know, later tells him, Moses, yeah, I just threw some gold into a pot and out came this calf. It's like a horrible lie, right? <laughs> And this is what God tells Moses, Exodus 32, verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly, (laughs) so quickly, out of the way that I commanded them. And they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. The first time you see this phrase described the people of God. And this is the same word that Stephen's using. You guys see what he's trying to do? See our history, guys. Look how God saved us through Moses. And literally, as he's up on the mountain receiving the word, we've already turned from him, already worshiping gods and saying a golden calf freed us from slavery in Egypt. The Levites and the leaders of Israel say this also in a confessional prayer to God as recorded in the book of Nehemiah. That's what the Levites say. They're praying to God. He says, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go and to possess a land that you sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to the slavery in Egypt. And Stephen is appealing to their history, their reason. We've resisted the Holy Spirit, brothers. And as our fathers did, so we are doing right now. We're priding ourselves in the fact that we have the law of Moses 
but look at how our fathers treated Moses, and we're doing the same thing to the fulfillment of what Moses talked about in Jesus. Verse 52, which of the prophets did our fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now have betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. The people of Israel have continually, historically, repeatedly rejected God's messenger. They rejected his prophets. They rejected Moses. They rejected those who announced the coming of the Messiah. In the climantic moment, the pinnacle of their rejection is the rejection of the Messiah himself, Jesus of Nazareth. And Stephen has just given them a history lesson, a concise, kind of condensed history. And he's calling his audience to believe in Jesus to give up their unbelief and their pride and their rejection just like their ancestors did. And at this point, they're enraged. (laughs) They just got called stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, and they don't like it. They're so angry, they're grinding their teeth at him. Like this, you're so angry, it's like shake, shaking mad, grind your teeth mad, it's boiling over. But what Stephen says next, this is the kicker. This is what does it. People are filled with rage and anger. Stephen's full of the Holy Spirit. He looked up at heaven. He sees the glory of God. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And this is what does it in for him, man. He said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now you hear that phrase, you're like, man, that's way less offensive than stiff-necked, right? You think? And that sounds like a, what's wrong with that phrase? Someone called me uncircumcised in heart and stiff-necked. I'd be a little more angry than, than this phrase, right? That's it. They're done. Rage boils over into murder. When Jesus said, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus says in the Gospel according to Luke that the Son of Man is going to be seated at the right hand of the Father. And the Son of Man is usually described as being seated. Hebrews says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The Apostle Paul says in Corinthians 3.1, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Ephesians 1.20 describes Jesus as seated at the right hand in the heavenly places. Jesus, the Son of Man, the Messiah, he's usually described as sitting. So why is Jesus standing? Why does Stephen say he's standing? Jesus, the Son of Man, is standing at the right hand of God, which is, in a sense, the, the visual depiction of like someone rising from the table to greet and in the Jewish law court, the, the, the traditional posture of being in court and accusing someone is actually standing. So when, when Stephen says, I see the Son of Man standing, he's saying, the Son of Man, the Messiah, is with me, and he's accusing you. And that's what does it. It's like they see red. Stephen is saying, the Son of Man... The Messiah, he's with me. He's not for you. He's, he's standing ready to receive me. And he's standing in condemnation against you, your counsel, the Sanhedrin. And this is the way that it ends. And you've repeatedly rejected the deliverers, the prophets, the messengers of old. You rejected Jesus. And when I look up at heaven, I see that the Messiah, he's with me. And he's condemning you. And they're stoning him. They, they get so mad, they just start throwing rocks at him. They take him out of the city. They're throwing their coats on at Saul's feet. They stone him and they kill him. And as Stephen is dying, he calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Do not hold their sin against them. It's the same thing Jesus cried out. He prays for God the Father to receive his spirit. 
And Stephen prays that Jesus would receive his. And just as Jesus cried out to God to forgive his enemies as he's nailed to the cross, Stephen cries out with a loud voice, Lord, don't hold this sin against him. This is amazing grace, isn't it? That you would say this to the very people who are killing you, just throwing rocks at you, crushing your body with stones. So we'll see, this is amazing grace as we'll, we'll see the, one of the witnesses who they lay the cloaks down is a guy named Saul. A man who would ravage the church and drag off men and women and put them in prison. This, this prayer would be answered in an extraordinary way for this guy named Saul. Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Jesus didn't hold it against Saul. He'd later be converted and be called Paul, and he would be someone who would multiply and advance the gospel in a way that maybe Stephen couldn't even probably comprehend. This guy, Saul. The fact that Stephen cries out with a loud voice to God not to hold this sin against them, about the people who are murdering him, his executioners, this is a power, this is an example of someone who has been gripped by the reality that his sins have been forgiven by grace alone. I don't think you make this kind of a claim if you don't believe that your sins have been forgiven simply by grace, that you're not any better than the people that are stoning you. You can't make that kind of a claim if you have some sort of superiority to others. You don't understand the grace of God in Christ. He's the man who shows, he understands that his sins, his mistakes, his rebellious acts have been forgiven by grace. Sometimes I think when we come to the Bible and the scriptures, we can do so in a way that, that misses the grace of God, that misses the gospel of Jesus, that misses Jesus. So we might read a story like this, like, wow, Stephen, such a great example. We should be more like Stephen. Here's four ways that we can be like Stephen in our life today. And that doesn't appeal to our hearts. That doesn't capture our hearts. Because what I want to do in our story this morning is to look at Stephen and look at the Savior that he trusted and show you him to transform us right here in this moment, to transform us right here on the spot. We don't have to go out and, and transform our hearts. Jesus is going to do it in the gospel. Amen? Jesus, Jesus was real to this man named Stephen. And I think the more that you believe and see and understand and are captured by God's forgiving grace, grace meaning undeserved kindness, grace meaning gift, not deserved, that your hearts will be more aligned with Stephen and ultimately more aligned with our Savior Jesus. And I want to show you in this story how Stephen highlights the glory of Jesus and how all these realities that Stephen talked about in his speech are a show the fulfillment, our particular glory, peculiar glories of Jesus. Jesus is the greater Joseph. Even though he was rejected by his brothers, even though he was betrayed and sold by his brothers, he offers forgiveness and reconciliation to his former enemies, but also provides a kind of food in our famine that if you eat of it, will never be hungry again. Joseph couldn't provide that kind of food, but Jesus can. Jesus is the greater Moses, who was called by God to deliver his people from slavery, but not simply a physical slavery in the land of Egypt. God called Jesus to deliver his people from the ultimate form of slavery, spiritual slavery, to sin and to Satan and to death. Jesus is both ruler and judge. He performed mighty signs and wonders in the time of his people, and he redeemed his people, and he will lead his people into the ultimate promised land. Jesus is the greater Solomon, whose wisdom exceeds that of any king who was didn't have a, a, is unfaithful in the number of brides that he has. He just accumulated so many brides. How did he even do, what, why, right? He's the greater Solomon who was committed to one bride. 
He saved himself. He purified himself for one bride, his church. And he built or embodies the temple of God that will never be destroyed. Jesus is the greater temple. In the tabernacle and later in the temple, God made his dwelling among the Jews in the form of a structure. Israel could say, the glory of God is with us because we have the tabernacle. We have the temple. And Jesus is the glory of God in the flesh. Jesus is God made flesh. John 1.14 says, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. I don't do this very often, but I know some enjoy seeing what the, the original, the Greek says. Kai ha logos, right, and the word, sarx egento. It's like flesh became, he became flesh. And kai, eskenosin, which literally would be translated tented, tabernacled. We translate it as that, made his dwelling, dwelt among us. So John is trying to cue his readers into the fact that Jesus is the new tabernacle, the new temple. He tabernacled. He made his presence in his, his glory revealed in the person of Jesus. Jesus is called Emmanuel because he's God with us. And as he's ascended to the heaven, he sends his spirit to be with us always. Jesus is the greater sacrificial system who makes payments for sins once and for all, continual sacrifices to rams and goats and lambs to take away sins. That's no longer required. Jesus is the once and for all, the final sacrifice for sins. Jesus is the greater high priest. He learned obedience through what he suffered and he was perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to anyone who believes. He's the eternal mediator between God and man. And Jesus is the greater king who walks out of the grave in victory. David died, Solomon died, Jesus died, but death could not hold Jesus. And death is not going to dethrone his kingdom or him from the throne. By the power of God, he rose from the tomb and he now offers this kind of resurrected life by the power of God to any who would believe in him. And he offers this salvation to us by sheer grace, meaning we don't deserve it, we don't earn it. Sometimes I've heard that the salvation that God offers to us as, 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 as if we're stranded in a, in, on the ocean. We've been in a shipwreck and we're on this life raft and we're, we're just calling out for help. And here comes God in, in a helicopter. He sends down the rope and here comes Jesus to save us. And we reach out his hand and he takes us and, and we're saved. Have you, anyone ever heard salvation described like this? God sends down the rope and we just take up and grab it. I, I think grace is better understood as we had a shipwreck and we drowned. And we're at the bottom of the ocean and sharks and fish are eating at our flesh and we're dead. And here comes Jesus. Boom. He's got this sweet scuba gear on. Maybe he doesn't even need scuba gear. He's just coming down and he, he takes our dead body. He brings us up to the surface. He resuscitates us. He gives us his own life. And we're made to, to walk in this, this life that he has given us. That to me helps me understand grace a little bit more. It wasn't as though I, I knew that it, I needed help and I just kind of, I just put my hand up. Like, no, I was, I was dead. <laughs> God's grace means I didn't even choose this. 
God's grace was so good to me that while I was still sinning, Christ died for me. And this salvation that he gives me is not by my own effort. I can't boast in it. Salvation is by grace alone. That's how I understand the scriptures. And if this salvation, if this is by grace alone, then, there, then there's, there's really no place for bitterness in my heart. If Jesus has forgiven me of all the wrongs that I've done and the person that I've sinned against the most in my whole life is God and he forgives me, this enables me to forgive anyone, doesn't it? If we think about that, if we're gripped by that, Stephen believed that seemingly and knew that we can never write off others. No one is too far from the reach of the grace of God. No one is outside of the reach of God's grace. No sin is unforgivable except, of, of course, like refusing his forgiveness, but, but his forgiveness goes to anyone. Even, even those who are stoning Stephen, Stephen cries out. My friends, before we start to beat ourselves up as we look at the story too of, man, I could never be like Stephen. <laughs> I get in a fight with my wife and I hold on to grudges. I have a hard time forgiving a friend when they sin against me, let alone executioners who are throwing rocks at me. And maybe that's where we need to ask God to help us make it real to our hearts, not just in the big moments, the very egregious moments, the very clear moments where we're opposed, but in those little moments, those day-to-day -day moments, those moments when we're, someone says something to us and our ego flares up and we get angry and we respond in bitterness and harshness. The quick, snappy remarks that can flare up when our egos are pricked when we lash out in anger, the motivational power to forgive others and to live in a life that is enjoying the grace of God and freely giving grace to others is a life that is captured by the grace that you have received for yourself. The motivational power to offer forgiveness is not found in ourselves, but it's in response to the forgiveness that Jesus has given us. Amen? Would God give us grace to know this kind of grace more deeply, that Jesus would shine more clearly in our life in our day-to-day -day interactions with our family, in our home. That we would look upon others in forgiveness and that by the glory of God, our hearts would be captured by this Jesus, that his heart would radiate and shine in our lives in the name of Jesus, amen? Let's pray. Father, our, our father of the faith, Abraham, was called to go to a land that, that you would show him. You, you promised him a son in his old age, and, and he believed, and his faith was counted to him as righteousness. You gave him Isaac, and he fathered Jacob, and he fathered 12 sons. You had a plan. And what the, the brothers of Joseph intended against him for evil, you meant for good. You, you saved your people from famine. You heard the cries of your people when a new Pharaoh came to power and oppressed and afflicted the Israelites. You called Moses. You raised him up to be ruler and redeemer. You, you promised God a prophet like him from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David, who would sit on an eternal throne of justice and peace. And from this line, you called Mary. By the power of God, she conceived and she bore a son named Jesus. And this promised son, we believe, Father, is the promised son, the the offspring of Abraham, the one through which the whole world would be blessed. We know that he was betrayed and murdered by your people, but we, we also believe that, that death could not hold him. 
the grave had no power over him. And he rose three days later. He appeared to his disciples and he sent them the Holy Spirit. And by your grace and faithfulness, this gospel has been preserved. It's been protected. It's been passed down throughout church history. It's been recorded in your word. And we are the fulfillment of your promise to Abraham. We are the people blessed by the offspring of Abraham in Jesus the Messiah. Thank you. That we have been invited into this story. This is, this is our story. You, you passed down this gospel. Someone in our life told us this gospel at one point, and we responded in faith. And we received the grace and forgiveness in Jesus. Lord, thank you that you did not leave us in our hard-heartedness, in our stiff nakedness. Is that the word? You have circumcised our hearts. You, you have removed the old. You've given us a heart that, that can actually follow you and love you and obey you. We don't do it perfectly. We still have remaining sin, but, but we, we do love you and we follow you and we try our best to honor you in all that we do. And we pray that as we've seen the gospel is in this moment is a, a pivotal point in church history. It, it, it scatters and it goes from Jerusalem into Samaria into the ends of the earth. We pray that others would, would respond the same way that we have to this message in faith. We pray that you would make this message in the reality of the gospel of Jesus and the forgiveness that he has freely given us. Make that real to our hearts, Father. Help us to believe this. Help us to show this to those around us that we might respond with kindness when others are harsh to us, that we might respond in forgiveness when others sin against us, that we might respond with love when others are cold or apathetic towards us, that we might respond with humility when those are pride or self-exalting around us, that we would respond in mercy when those who respond to us in mean ways, that, that you would increase our compassion and love towards others around us, and that we would respond in grace when we are sinned against. We pray that you would forgive us and our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.